What if you could reduce the chaos of choosing between dozens of decisions into two options? Reducing our options to two choices or bifurcating them paints our path forward in binary black and white, saving us precious willpower. Combining this with a singular focus is a powerful recipe. If we can narrow our visor so all we think about is achieving that one goal, then we might be set for success. But where could that singular focus be getting in our way? Is there more to risk than splitting our bets? And when might we just need to go all in? Let's get into it. Welcome to Subject Matter. Hello and welcome to Subject Matter. I'm your host, as always, Ben Bradbury, bringing you episode two of season two. And today we have a great discussion for you. The big idea that we are going to be discussing is the relationship between two concepts. And one is the idea that we can reduce our decision into two split choices, which we can call bifurcation, which we're going to get into in just a second. And the second is a mental model that we can use to achieve singular focus on a goal, which as we'll see, has its pros and cons to achieving success, whatever that might mean for you. Both have overlap, but both concepts can hurt us if we're not careful, as we will see. But just a little reminder for you guys, if you didn't catch episode one, as a definition of what mental models actually are, you can think of mental models as tools for our brain. This is very similar to how we have apps as tools for our phone. The different app will be able to fulfill a different function, and in the same way, these mental models help us understand the world better and ourselves by applying a different model to each task of the day. And so the task that we are tackling, as always, on the second season is decision-making and trying to find smarter ways for us to make decisions, conserve willpower, and essentially get ahead in whatever discipline that might mean to us. But before we go any further, we are going to need to define today's keyword. Do you know what it means? It's bifurcation. Bifurcation can be defined as the division of something into two branches or parts. Now, that's very important because what it isn't is just splitting up into more than one thing. It is specifically a fork, two paths. And it comes from the Latin bifurcus, which literally means two forks. Bi is having two, furca is a fork. So when we say bifurcating a decision, we literally mean splitting into no more than two choices. And that aspect, as we're going to see, becomes incredibly important when it comes between splitting between the big decisions and the small decisions, the fast and the slow decisions, there's a bunch of applications that we are going to get into. And the other keyword that we're going to need today, which I'm sure you can all define, is focus. The dictionary definition has it down as an act of concentrating interest or activity on something. So focus doesn't necessarily have to be conjoined with productivity, right? This could be watching a movie, being present in a conversation, really enjoying a mouthful from your last meal, Focusing on something is the act of bringing our attention. It's the act of being in the moment. And so what we're exploring today, listeners, on today's episode of Subject Matter is the relationship between these two concepts. So why does this matter then? The big idea is that we can use bifurcation and singular focus as tools to remove unnecessary decisions from our lives. And the big question that we'll be tackling today and what you will practically come away from by the end of this episode with is answering how can I use my singular focus more effectively to speed up towards my goals versus knowing when to slow down and bifurcate decisions to mitigate risk. And similarly, 
when do these approaches create blind spots that could harm me if they are left unchecked? So let's get into today's first segment. We're starting with bifurcation, splitting decisions in two. And when it comes to making decisions, one big part of deciding our next move is knowing the problem to solve. And our first story gives us a lens into deciding what problems are even worth solving in the first place. You're back at high school and you are frantically running down the corridor. You're pushing school kids out the way and right behind you, angrily closing, is a bulky, mean bully. This guy really wants your lunch money. Now you're sprinting down this corridor. When you get to the end of the door, you open the door and frantically you look up and you look down and there's a set of stairs. So here you're faced with a choice and I want you to actually think about what you would do in this situation. So imagine you're at the end of the corridor, you see a set of stairs going up, you see a set of stairs going down. Those are your only two options and the bully is closing fast. So you have seconds to think about it. There's no point over planning this. Literally, this is your next decision. Are you going to go up or are you going to go down? Thought about it? Well, the correct answer is to go up, at least according to the founder of Y Combinator, Paul Graham. Paul Graham's argument is that when you're faced with a bully closing fast, the bully can run down those stairs just as fast as you. And he can use his weight to shift himself down. And unfortunately, he could be closing on you pretty fast. But as soon as you, the nimble and agile school kid, start running up the stairs, gravity starts working against the bully. He starts panting and puffing. And before too long, he'll give up. At least that's the theory behind it. But the big idea behind this from Paul Graham is to take the stairs. That's how we can condense this concept. And for Paul, as the founder of the Accelerator Y Combinator, for those of you who don't know, Y Combinator is a startup accelerator. And when Paul was running his own startup, this mental model of taking the stairs placed more ground between his competitors who might want to clone his software and a nimble startup that is solving a small problem. He says, and I quote, like gorillas, startups prefer the difficult terrain of the mountains where the troops of the central government can't follow. And so you can think about this in context of a company. You have this big, bulky operation trying to take your market share, but you, as a startup, you have an advantage. You can find the hard problems to solve. And taking the stairs in practice, for those of us who aren't working at a startup and want to apply this in other areas of our life, taking the stairs doesn't practically just mean getting a leg workout when you can, when faced between the choice of an elevator and some good old-fashioned concrete. It actually means, according to Paul Graham anyway, finding the hardest problems and attacking them with everything you have. And this gives us our first opportunity to apply bifurcation. Bifurcation meaning splitting two things in two. And the bifurcated decision in this case You can ask yourself, is this the hardest problem I'm facing or not? And especially if you are in that position of the company of one and you're trying to build leverage for yourself, if you're writing a blog or you're starting your own podcast, or you're really trying to take a little bit more initiative for your success, then the degree to which the hardship of your problems is going to be correlated with how defensible your brand and your product is in the long term. If someone comes up behind you, and they feel like they can just take your product, then believe me, they will. It's not uncommon in Silicon Valley for your company to wake up in the morning and realize that Adobe have just put 2,000, or not 2,000, that's a bit extravagant, 200 engineers onto your software and your clone, and overnight your product is redundant. This happens all the time in a bunch of companies. But we can apply this advantage beyond building software. 
And the way that we can do that is first by thinking about where our strengths give us an advantage. So if you're a great salesperson at work and you love selling, take on the toughest accounts that no one can choose. If you're great with numbers, strive to solve the most difficult equations. If you're great with words, try to both have the most expansive vocabulary and be able to communicate in the simplest manner. Choosing the hardest problem is putting more space between us and our peers in whatever subject matter we might choose to invest in. And I think this can be summed up excellently by the old Hogwarts headmaster, Albus Dumbledore, who said, we must all face the choice between what is right and what is easy. So practically for us, I think this even goes a step further because before asking if this is the hardest problem, we need to ask if this problem is even worth solving in the first place. Will solving this problem actually bring me anything valuable? Or am I doing it out of a sense of duty and obligation to an existing commitment? And if you want more context on that, you can listen to our last episode where we discuss the sunk cost fallacy. Because before bifurcating between the hardest problem and everything else, we need to choose between good problems and bad problems. The ones that are worth thinking about, like what does the next iteration of my product look like? Or what is the next best relationship for me to build in my industry? Versus the bad problems that are a waste of time, like all the pointless anxiety and chatter that can keep us up awake at night as our mind does backflips. But before we go any further into bifurcation, we need to take a step back. Where focus goes, energy flows. And the more time we spend focused on something, whether that's our jobs, a relationship, or a new skill, the more good problems we can identify and the more potential areas for growth there are too. But as we'll learn, it's not just enough to focus. It is a case of singular focus. And today's mental model for focus comes from a Dutch tennis player called Richard Kracek. Now, Richard Kracek, for a high-performing tennis player, his career was fairly unremarkable. He majored at a lot of tournaments, made it quite well in the Grand Slams, he'd get to the quarters, but he never won anything until 1996 where Richard Kracek wins the Tournament of Champions, Wimbledon. And this made him the only Dutch tennis player to do so at the time. Now, Richard Kracek never won Wimbledon ever again. He actually didn't even win any other Grand Slams for that matter. But that doesn't even matter. But every time he's introduced on Dutch national television, he's introduced as Wimbledon champion Richard Kracek. And I needn't say any more about the gravitas that that pulls in tennis. Wimbledon is the tournament to end all tournaments. Winning that is the ultimate symbol of prowess. And the lesson that we can take from Kracek is that in whatever field we're in, whether we're a tennis player or not, is that you only need to quote unquote make it once in order to have a real credible business card you can use for whatever you want. For us to succeed, we must win Wimbledon once. Now, this doesn't just apply to sport. This could easily be raising a family. This could be buying your first home. This could be successfully exiting a business, winning a long-distance race, or something else entirely from a multitude of options. Whatever Wimbledon looks like to you, that is entirely in your choosing, your definition of success. But you must choose. And what is the one thing that you want to be known for? Because if you are fortunate enough to make it, and of course there's no guarantee here, but if you are fortunate enough, you'll be known for one thing at first. 
Your business card doesn't have space for a long list of achievements that you might find on a CV or a resume. And that's not to say that you can't do more later in life, but singular focus is a core component of achieving that one goal. If we take Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours rule, which is very simply that if we invest 10,000 hours into something, that's enough to become a genuine expert. And there is some dispute as to the validity of that, but just hear me out for a second. We have about 80,000 hours to work in our careers. And so if we apply the 10,000 hours rule, we have about eight swings at bat in order to try and become an expert in something. So we can actually, if we want to, win Wimbledon eight different times. But to start out, in order to get our foot on the ladder, we have to win Wimbledon once. This is a model for what success in my mind really means. Because there's a difference between considering ourselves successful and others having that same consideration. Whether we like it or not, perception matters. Success is in the eye of the beholder. So this is the foundation for our discussion today. This singular focus on winning Wimbledon once annihilates the need or the desire to want to complete lots of different projects at the go at once. And I've been totally guilty of this, by the way, having two, three, four more projects on the go that don't get the time and attention that they deserve. And all this ends up is that you kind of sputter along, making progress on lots of different goals, but nothing monumental. You can think of this like someone frantically trying to spin a load of plates. And if you are spinning plates today, let me remind you, spinning plates do not build stable towers. And so let's flip the script for a second. Let's look at someone who has a stable tower. Arguably, they've got the biggest stable tower of all in the land of business. They have the biggest Wimbledon win of any company going today by some definitions. But also, he's spinning a lot of plates. And so how does the CEO on the planet, who is arguably spinning more plates than anyone else, bifurcate his decisions? Jeff Bezos, the Amazon CEO, splits all of his decisions into two camps, type one and type two decisions. Type two decisions are relatively low risk experiments. So for an example, you can think of Amazon's no need to pay supermarket, Amazon Go. There's no cashiers. You can just walk in and out of the building. Genius concept, right? But no idea if it'll actually work. So what did Amazon do? Well, they rolled out 4,000 stores nationwide and that, no, of course they didn't. They released one store in Seattle to employees as a beta in 2016. And then when they tested the beta to go public with it, they decided they would open eight more stores in 2018. And slowly but surely, they've expanded from there. What they didn't do is go crazy all at once, betting everything on this decision. It was clearly a type two decision that could fail. Now, type one decisions, on the other hand, are different. They are irreversible and require Bezos as a decision maker to stake his company's livelihood on them. So now in your mind, contrast one store from Amazon Go opening to another big move that Bezos would make in 2017, where he acquires Whole Foods for $13.7 billion. Now, I don't know what the upper limit is on the price tag for a refund, but I can tell you $13.7 billion is definitely pushing it. And he did the same thing in 2018, where he acquires PillPack, which signals the intent for the everything store that is Amazon to launch into healthcare. Now, every decision is a risk. 
But by segmenting between type one and type two decisions, Bezos knows which decisions he must firmly stand behind with everything he has, where there is no refund clause. But similarly, with his type two experiments, he knows where he can afford to lose. Now, I see two important learnings for you here today from that story. The first reflection is to know the difference between the big bets that you must go all in on and the smaller bets where you can afford to lose. So those big bets that you're going to have to stand behind is where you might boldly decide it's time for a career change or a new relationship or a new home when any one of your three pillars are going to be changed. And for more information on that, you can check out episode 14 of season one. And where possible, start out with a small bet first to test your idea before going all in. Most type 1 decisions are disguised as a type 2 decision beforehand to test it. So let's say you want to write a book. Well, then publish a sample chapter online and send it to 10 of your friends. Want to complete an Ironman race? Try their rigorous training schedule for a week and see how you feel afterwards. Feel like you want to move country, particularly compelled to a new home? and take a long weekend holiday there first and see whether you actually like it. The second reflection is that singular focus and bifurcating decisions are not mutually exclusive. Unlike a lot of episodes on subject matter, this is not about conflicting models. This is about two areas of focus, no pun intended, that we can bring to ourselves that will improve our decision-making as a stack. And for Jeff Bezos, it is his singular focus on improving the customer experience that allows him to split his bets between type one and type two decisions. Everything is put through his win Wimbledon once lens of having the best in class customer experience. He describes his customers as divinely discontent. This is a man who is always striving, pushing to deliver the best customer experience. And when he has that lens, he then bifurcates between type one and type two decision. This focus creates the canvas upon which he can paint his future choices. But it's time to sit at the other side of the table for a second, because sometimes life doesn't give us the luxury of splitting our bets. And when the odds are stacked against us and seemingly insurmountable, risky strategies become, well, risky. Aim high, and the slim odds of success might act as a deterrent. But the truth is, risk and luck are two sides of the same coin, and sometimes a different approach is needed. To tell this next story, we're going to need to introduce two characters. Our first character is a diligent worker. He applies himself, he's driven, he's capable, and he had a school of his dreams that he wanted to be educated at, and that was Harvard Business School. Now, he applied once, throwing everything into it, and he was unfortunately rejected. He would apply a further two more times, making it three, and was rejected again. But he didn't stop there. He was rejected from Harvard 10 times. How would you feel being rejected from the school or company of your dreams that many times? What do you think it would do to your character? The other character in our story experienced a very different kind of hardship. In the 7-7 London bombings, she lost 80% of the blood in her body, losing both her legs in the progress, and was in a coma for 10 days. Now, the point here is not comparing what these two characters have been through. Obviously, both their experiences are worlds apart, but it is the thread that links them that matters. 
If our characters were trying to bifurcate their decisions at this point as someone who has rejection into the double figures, another with a significant disability, all of life's statistical odds tell them to stop risking and to play it safe. Mitigate your risk and accept that life clearly is telling you this isn't the path to go. But this is where our model needs another layer of nuance, because there's a huge factor that we haven't accounted for in this entire equation, and that is the power of perseverance. Both our characters didn't give up. In the game of risk and luck, persevering stacks our odds in our favor. And what happened next? Both our characters threw all caution to risk. And here is where they would end up. Jack Ma never went to Harvard but he would go on to found a small company from his Hangzhou apartment called Alibaba. And today, the Alibaba group dominates China's e-commerce market, and Jack Ma alone is worth $40 billion. Within less than a decade of her accident, Martine Wright was on the British Paralympic Games squad. She was a member of the British sitting volleyball team at London 2012 and awarded an MBE for her services. Today, she's an ambassador for the disabled sport. Now, the big takeaway here is that both individuals had the odds of success hugely reduced, albeit even taken away from them, if you want to call it that. And if we're in a similar position, we feel like the odds are stacked against us, then opting for a conservative strategy of mitigating risk with bifurcation could actually hurt you. If success is around the corner and you stop at the last turn, you'll never actually know. Imagine if Jack Ma is stuck in a position where he's thinking, do I apply again and get rejected? Do I not apply? And then one day he decides to take the third door and start his own company without the education. Martine Wright takes back her sovereignty, her agency, by deciding I'm not going to let my life be lived with this handicap and become an elite sporting athlete in the process. Now, there's no way to know for sure. Of course, this doesn't have all the answers. It's not foolproof and we don't know how success will play out. But if you do have a firm conviction in what you're doing, then this could perhaps be the ultimate single focus. Because as Friedrich Nietzsche said, he who has a why can bear any how. But just as bifurcating risk isn't a universally effective approach, so too does our model of singular focus have its flaws? And to see exactly how we need to turn to the world of science. Our society uses the Nobel Prize to recognize some of the shining achievements of the smartest men and women humanity has produced. And if you look at some of the winners of the scientific Nobel Prize, when these Nobel laureates come to receive their awards and they stand on the podium, the world's adoration shining around them, there's a sentence that strings all of their speeches together. And they say, well, obviously, I don't think I could have done this work today. Excuse me? You couldn't have done this work today? What's the problem? I hear you asking. The problem is singular focus. Scientific grants today are focused on application. Scientists who want funding for their passion projects must clearly state how their research will actually be used. And if you can't see far enough into the future, if you're not like Prometheus with the gift of the all-seeing eye, then your application won't get funded. Now, unfortunately, this focus on application is hurting them. 
It's hurting science because it is a biased form of selection. The singular focus on getting the most efficient research overlooks a painfully important fact, which is that some of the biggest scientific breakthroughs ever were by complete accident. Let me read off my giant scroll of scientific achievements that were by complete accident. We have the microwave, x-rays, penicillin, insulin, superglue, and even Play-Doh. Yes, the majestic creation that is Play-Doh, ladies and gentlemen, were all accidental. Think about how many breakthroughs we've chosen to potentially overlook, all because we couldn't see where the experiment would actually end up. And the same thing might be happening in your life. Singular focus removes the vital ingredient of serendipity. And for another perspective on that, you're going to need to tune in next week to hear what our first guest has to say. But for now, let's think, what can we do differently? We need to keep ourselves open to experimentation, the kind of type two decisions that Bezos uses. We must be willing to change our course and maybe even redefine what winning Wimbledon once actually means to us. Now, if this sounds contradictory, let's take another example from the scientific world, but this time someone who's approaching it through a lens of experimentation. Every five years, the physicist Andre Geim changes his area of expertise. It gives him a fresh perspective to see his work through. He doesn't stagnate. He is perpetually like a child full of curiosity. He likes to say he doesn't do research. He just does search. And this principle manifests in what he calls his Friday night experiments. These are totally unfunded, totally unstructured, where you can turn up and do whatever you want. And one of Geim's Friday night experiments would go on to win him the Ig Nobel Prize, which is for the silliest work of the year, and he managed to levitate a frog with electromagnets. But that same principle of Friday night experiments, of knowing that he didn't have all the answers and just was able to approach his work from a perspective of curiosity, led him to start ripping pencil lead with scotch tape, which would turn into graphene, the world's first single atom thick material, stronger than Kevlar, more transparent than glass, and electrically conducted. And for that work, he won the Nobel Prize. A later theme of this season of subject matter is how making decisions with incomplete information is a key ingredient of this game called life. And to go against it, assuming we have all the information, like our scientists getting funding based on application, is a dangerous path to ignorance. There is a saving grace, though, for the people who are focused on funding through application. It could be argued, and I'm oversimplifying here, but it could be argued that it's easier for researchers to decide who gets funding. They can bifurcate, they can ask, does this have an application or does it not? And in today's final segment, we'll look at a discipline that is governed by a certain kind of bifurcation that we can use too. I'm a storyteller. My craft is inherently subjective. What one person deems captivating might be boring for the person next to them. There's a gray area in what actually constitutes good art. And this is same for a lot of the arts, paintings, poems, prose, whatever you might take it, there is always that layer of subjectivity. But in the world of coding as a developer, the curtain is pulled back. Success is black and white. Either the code works or it doesn't. There's no middle ground. Now, I have limited technical proficiency, but what it does appear to me 
is that developers have a very dividing definition of success. What works and what doesn't? It's binary. And if they're making arguments as to what software to use or they're splitting hairs in meetings, these arguments are all passed through a powerful binary filter. Does this actually work or does it not? Bifurcation is binary. Bifurcate means splitting our decisions into two, no more. It means reducing the colorful complexity of everyday decisions to black and white. Black and white decision-making gives us back precious willpower. If we only have to choose between two options every morning, if we only have to choose between two options at work, we are absolved from the chaos of feeling over-paralyzed and analysis paralysis setting on from too many options. Now, the interesting thing here is that this overlaps with today's mental model of winning Wimbledon once. This focus also acts as a filter by which we can eliminate unnecessary decisions. An athlete who is locked into a rigorous performance schedule makes decisions about nutrition easily. Does this serve my body or does it not? If you're focused on being a parent wanting to spend more time with your children, it makes decisions about how you spend your free time significantly easier. And if you're focusing on a North Star goal, whatever that is, these goals make it easier to decide whether something will move us closer to it or not. And together, this becomes a highly powerful model to make the right decision when it matters most. So let's review what we've learned here today. The first big idea from this episode is that you can bifurcate your decisions. Whether you're deciding between hard and easy problems, or whether a problem is even worth tackling in the first place, applying a binary black and white filter to our decisions lets us eliminate unnecessary options and conserve precious willpower for the decisions that matter. And perhaps the decision that matters is our second big takeaway, which is having singular focus, deciding like Richard Kracek did to win Wimbledon once. What will your Wimbledon actually look like? This is a big ingredient to how your success is going to be perceived by others. And for some of you, I'll come out and say that might not matter at all. Whether your perceived success is of value to you is completely up to you. But as we've seen, overlapping this with bifurcation creates a powerful model we can use to illuminate the path and move along it swiftly. And finally, be careful. These models are not flawless. Like scientific funding, too much focus on a desired result can leave you blind to the opportunity that's staring you right in the face. And sometimes the odds might not be in your favor, yet the difference between success and failure is that vital, final decision. I think one of the reasons why I'm such a positive, I'd be described as such a positive and optimistic person is because I understand that life is difficult, that in order to make life meaningful, you have to take on responsibility. You have to take on challenges that are bigger than yourself. And the things that are going to distract you from entailing in one of those two things is taking on unnecessary risk or unnecessary problems. That is next week's guest. He bifurcates his decisions. And next time, we'll hear his story, learn exactly how he thinks about decisions, and see where they intersect with the ideas we discussed today. So thank you all for listening. If you haven't subscribed already to Subject Matter, you can catch us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you are listening to make sure you don't miss out. 
Our big focus for this season is making subject matter as relevant and practically useful to you as possible. So if there was something that you liked or didn't like, or you'd like to see more of, we would absolutely love to hear from you. You can reach me directly over email at ben at benbradbury.com, or you can reach me on Twitter at benbradbury underscore. So without further ado, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week for another episode of Subject Matter.